Hello and welcome to Sunflower Sutras. I am your host, Tara. To begin with, I would like to read the poem Dead Musicians by Siegfried Sassoon. From you, Beethoven, Bach, Mozart, the substance of my dreams took fire. You built cathedrals in my heart and lit my pinnacled desire. You were the ador and the bright procession of my thoughts toward prayer. You were the wrath of storm, the light on distant sigils aflare. Great names, I cannot find you now in these loud years of youth that strives. Through doom toward peace, upon my brow I wear a wreath of banished lives. You have no part with lads who fought and laughed and suffered at my side. Your fugues and symphonies have brought no memory of my friends who died. For when my brain is on their track, in slangy speech I call them back. With foxtrot tunes their ghosts I charm. Another little drink won't do us any harm. I think of ragtime, a bit of ragtime, and see their faces crowding round. To the sound of syncopated beat, they've got such jolly things to tell. Home from hell with a blightly wound so neat. And so the songs break off, and I'm alone. They're dead. For God's sake, stop that gramophone. And now I am happy to introduce to you listeners the amazing senior authority in slam poetry, Topeka local Janet Stotts. Hi, Tara. I'm pretty sure a lot of people, especially our audience, as they're a younger audience, has not had the privilege to know your work just yet. So please feel free introduce yourself and let everyone know what needs to be known about you. Well, I do call myself Kansas' oldest slam poet. I was fortunate enough to meet Matt Spezia down at the speakeasy when they do their open mics. And I was doing something that was more in common to what they call spoken word than what is strictly slam. And in fact, I didn't know strictly what slam was, but after a couple of contests, Matt got me straightened out, got the rhythm, got the rhyme. Of course, I'm much slower. I can't do the fast stuff like Matt does, but I enjoy slam as a way of writing out some of the more negative aspects of our society. See... That's what shocked me. I got to be honest, it shocked me the first time I ever heard your work. I had absolutely never heard the perspective of an older woman through the medium of slam. And it was just one of those things where you you needed a moment. And once I took it in fully, I was just like, damn, I'm going to follow this woman. (laughs) Well, it's, as I say, form of self-expression I do a lot of what I call softer, regular poetry, but slam is, Matt says, 50% poetry and 50% performance. And I enjoy the performance part as much as I do the poetry. But again, 
I don't put in the hours of practice that he does, so I am far less polished. <laughs> How long exactly have you been writing poetry? Well, that's the odd thing. Like most young women, I wrote it in high school, and looking back on it, it was so bad, I just gave it up entirely until about three years ago. And then there was something about selling the farm, moving to Topeka, retiring from teaching, and it just all came rushing back. And I hope what I write now is better than what I wrote in high school. That is a fascinating progression from having such a long hiatus to immediately jumping into what is arguably one of the more aggressive forms of poetry. <laughs> See, that's the thing, though. It's not just the presentation that matters for you. What I hear from your pieces is you're bringing your own unique experience, like you said. I don't think anyone else out there has any pieces about things like elder abuse and disrespect. Yes, the subtle disrespect and the, of course, congressional disrespect of seniors are things that work their way into my slam. Do you want me to read it? If you want to right now, sure. Okay, this is called Don't Call Me Dear. Don't call me dear or sweetie when you serve me. And drop young lady from your vocabulary, unless, of course, you're referring to your own contemporary. And if I complain, don't roll your eyes, or I'll give my money to the other guys, and you can spend your life asking, do you want fries? When did youth stop thinking of the elderly as wise and instead start thinking we'll all have dementia before our extinction? Yes, Alzheimer's is a dread disease affecting 10% maybe of the elderly, so we're not all crazy. Yes, our retrieval system may be a little slow because we have so many memories we won't let go, like our mother telling us to sit up straight but our backs are rounded from staying up late, hunched over a desk, trying to stretch a social insecurity check to cover rent and all the rest. And God forbid you should have a condition that requires you to get a new prescription. Chances are you can't afford it unless you can order it from our neighbors to the north who seem to understand what seniors are worth. Yes, the golden age is now merely brass unless you are at least in the upper middle class, and then you won't have to live with those you love because you can't afford to board in the care homes of today, which really only care how much you can pay. And our fat cat congressmen with their government pensions won't give Social Insecurity a needed extension. We paid for that program with every paycheck, and this is the one they want to reject? and balance the budget on our bended backs and slice our slender lifeline in our own shortened lifetime? Oh, you say my voice is a little shrill and my face lacks a sweet grandmotherly smile? Well, excuse me. One thing I know that's indubitably true, what's happening to me will happen to you. So all I have to say, my sweeties, my dears, is good friggin' luck in the next 50 years. That is 
The best way to deliver any message is wrap it up with a nice bow of humor. <laughs> yeah, you know what they say, catch more flies with honey than you do with vinegar. That is certainly true. I can't think of anyone else. And there's certainly a lot of older poets out there, but I can't think of anyone else who's talking about these topics. And so it's just, it's nice to have that level of diversity in our own local scene. Thank you. There are, as you say, poets talking about it in Kansas, but we are scattered throughout a large and diverse state. And one thing I found out working with the Kansas Authors Club is that it is difficult to round up our local poets. We have a convention once a year, and it's coming up soon, well, October. But like a lot of organizations we are kind of aging out, and it's hard to get younger poets, and we know they're out there, to come and be a part of our organization because they walk in the door and see all the swinkleys and think, uh, maybe not. <laughs> this brings up something to my mind. It's a idea of the fresh faces, younger people, they immediately correlate to an active, successful progression. And you proved that totally wrong because you recently got another one of your fiery political pieces published. Actually, it hasn't even come out yet. It's going to be included in a journal called Passenger, and it's supposed to come out this summer. It is a piece that came up because I found out about 10 or 20 years ago that my grandfather had been a member of the KKK, and that the KKK had been quite active in Kansas during the Great Depression. The idea of one's grandfather being in the KKK really shocked me. And then that kind of brought back a memory of a class I had in the eighth grade, and a teacher who I think was trying to tell me something that I just was entirely unprepared to hear. Would you like to hear that one? Oh, of course. Okay. This is KKK Kansas. Three miles out of town, a cross was burning. The Depression plus the Dust Bowl's devastation caused people in my hometown to listen as the KKK said, oh, we're just another political party, and donned the robes and the prejudices of the Klan. One of them was my grandfather. Grandpa led the all-KKK school board when it voted to hire only KKK members as teachers. Jobs were so scarce, no one dared question their rule. Thirty years later, respected history teacher Mr. S. was explaining the 1930s Depression and Dust Bowl to my eighth-grade history class. I giggled at a photo of the Klan in full regalia with robes and pointed hats. When the whole class joined in, Mr. S. sighed and dropped his leonine head to his chest. He heaved himself up on his crutches. We all quieted, respecting his struggle with legs shrunken from polio. 
His rumbling baritone began. The clan's hold on this town was brief but total. The banker only gave loans to KKK members, and only KKK customers had credit at the grocery store, deciding who could buy flour and other essentials they couldn't grow. Even teachers had to join. I was given the choice between my job and my ethics. I'm ashamed to say his voice broke, and we examined our penny loafers. When he finished speaking, the silence deepened until no one dared break it. Then the closing bell rang, and we scattered like quail. And was this something that you finished fairly recently? Yeah, I wrote this maybe maybe a year ago, maybe not that long ago. And I'm working really hard, but so far unsuccessfully, on another one that combines the community consequences of my grandfather's participation in our small town with my grandmother's patience with the shunning that took place. And then I have a poem written by my grandfather who wrote, you know, funny verses for birthday cards and everything all the time. But after grandma died, he wrote a very old-fashioned but still deeply felt poem called Regrets. And I'm trying to scramble all that together, and so far I haven't been able to. This sounds to me like a beautiful mixture of deeply personal family understanding and mixing that with coming to terms with our own state's history. And this is memories and traumas that have been with you this whole time, all of these many years. And it's just recently that you turn it into this amazing anecdote. That's what I'm trying to get across with the idea that don't judge the book by its cover. Just because it's a bunch of older people at the Kansas Authors Club does not mean that they're not pounding out incredible new content. That's true. And you were talking about it being an anecdote, and one of the things that I'm struggling with is the new concept of prose poetry, because when I'm writing this out, it is sort of more prosy, you know, but it's still, I want to, you know, have poetic elements to it. And I know these new forms have emerged, but I'm not quite very good <laughs> at that yet or at trying to find the line, if there is one, between prose and poetry. I think it's a very subjective line. I think what I've heard is definitely poetry. Thanks. I want to keep this first one poetry. The second part may end up more on a prose form and then end with grandpa's poetry to kind of bring it all back around, sort of a suite of thoughts on our varied history. It was just a real shock. <laughs> yes. This is your story, and you have all of the authority to 
choose how you want it to end. That's the problem. I have the authority, but I haven't had the decision or the inspiration <laughs> yet <laughs> to put it together. But I'll go off and work on, on something else and then come back to it and then I'll, you know throw on the door and go work on something else. <laughs> I took a couple of classes from Eric McHenry here at Washburn that I enjoyed very much. And one of the problems he was gently pointing out to me in my poetry is, I'm not very good with meter, <laughs> particularly with counting meter, because I like the sonnet form. I've heard your sonnets, and they're very delightful. Thank you. But... They aren't always strictly iambic pentameter. So I was at the library, our wonderful downtown library, and got some books on meter and picked up a little dusty one on haiku, which was one of the worst books I think I've ever read. <laughs> it reminded me of the joke about the little boy who brought a book on penguins back to the librarian and she said, well, did you like it? And he said, no, it told me more about penguins than I wanted to know. <laughs> and that's exactly, you know, how I felt about high, this book on haiku. It went back to the 7th century Japanese forms and trudged its dusty way forward. But it did get me writing haiku again. But I won't read haiku because, to me, it's not an oral form. It just needs to be read. So I've had some published, and I hope to have more, but I write them sporadically, avoiding other deeper things, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> Although I did learn one really important thing from the dusty little book, which I dipped in and out of, that haiku doesn't reflect an emotion. What it was meant to do originally, way back, was present the scene that caused the emotion to arise. Hmm. That's why it's so nature-based and seasonal, etc., etc., as they went on and on. But, uh, yeah, that was worth learning. So even after all these years, you still got more things to learn. That's a nice little thing to think about. <laughs> oh, always learning. If you stop learning, I think your brain dies. <laughs> <laughs> kind of to jump off of the Kansas Authors Club point, you were telling me earlier about an exciting adventure that you have set forth for the first Friday Art Walk. Ah, Yes. The Kansas Authors Club District 1 is planning to have a sidewalk table at the first Fridays as soon as the weather is bearable so that members of the Kansas Authors Club can then sell their books. Barbara Waterman Peters at Studio 831 has been kind enough to offer us a place on her sidewalk and we will be down there probably this fall with novels and poetry and memoirs and a variety from a variety of authors here in Topeka. See, that's going to be exciting because I keep hearing about 
all of the Authors Club members, and I know that a lot of them have books, and not just poetry books, but long-form novels and the memoirs like you brought up, and it's exciting to get the chance to just finally grab them all. (laughs) Well, selling books has never been the way to fame and fortune, uh, particularly fortune, unless, of course, um, you're J.K. Rowling. (laughs) But... Writing poetry is not financially remunerative, and I never thought it would be. (laughs) So, you know, most of us, we sell books to each other or trade, you know, back and forth. But we do have some with series. One of my friends, Riona Hemingway, has written a large number of historical Kansas novels, which I've read with pleasure. And it'll be nice to have it out, as you say, for the public to see. I don't think the general public knows how much or how alive the uh, literary scene in Topeka is. Often, I think Topeka's sort of relegated as a Philistine town, you know, (laughs) nothing like Lawrence, you know, which is so elevated. But actually, we have a lot of both young and older authors writing in Topeka, supported in a large part by our wonderful downtown library, which puts on at least six events a year for writers and sponsors the NaNoWriMo, which is the National Novel Writers Month. That's what actually got me started writing. I was wandering through the library and picked up this little slips telling about NaNoWriMo, which is write 50,000 words in 30 days, which is a daunting task, but I wasn't doing a lot at the time, so I thought, eh. And I completed the challenge with the support of the library, and published a novel called The Orchid Garden. So it's a novel that brings together the experience I had when I went to China in 2002 to help my daughter-in-law adopt my Chinese granddaughter, Ella. And the experience just really stayed with me. It's still a very vivid memory. And I wove the experience of adoption in and out of a family in Topeka based largely, uh, the heroines based on my adventurous niece, Catherine. And it was fun to write the first time. The next six times weren't as much fun. (laughs) And when I finally couldn't stand to look at it any longer, I put it on Create Space and self-published. Both that book and my chapbook of poetry called Winter's Yield are on Amazon and are self-published. I'm not quite sure why I've not tried to have something published through a publisher. I know several publishers who I'm sure would be happy to look at my work, but I have this I'm going to do it myself thing. It's easier to do it yourself, and yourself is sometimes way more reliable. (laughs) (laughs) Well, 
Well, I have heard horror stories about that, particularly with my little book of poetry. I had signed up for the Great Writers Right Here event at the Topeka Public Library. It's a December event for local authors, it, 50 local authors together in one room. And, of course, I wanted something new to bring to it. And I, of course, put it off until October. <laughs> <laughs> so, yes, I threw it together. I think that myself and all other procrastinators out there <laughs> will take inspiration from that. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I, I do procrastinate. Love a deadline. <laughs> <laughs> well, regardless, I think that you've done fairly well for yourself, especially with this being all in all a pretty recent effort. You've really just kind of jumped straight into the fire. <laughs> well, yes, and I was really, really surprised to find so many kindred spirits riding in Topeka. As I've said, the community, both young and old and in between, is really vibrant here in Topeka. And I think we have a lot to be proud of. The two open mics we have down in Noto, the first Friday at the Speakeasy and the second Tuesday at the Wheelbarrow, give poets a chance to go down and share their work with people. And we have a lot of good programs at the library. This last Saturday, I took part in a workshop with Karen Miriam Goldberg. Oh. Yeah, one of our first state poet laureates. Um, she gave a workshop at the library on writing the story of your life. She's a really nice woman to work with. Yes, she is. And it was a really good workshop. Topeka's a good place to jump into poetry. I was surprised to discover that myself, and it gives me a lot of relief. <laughs> <laughs> we have a lot of published authors. We have people who have left and gone on to bigger things, and it's nice to be in Topeka. Yes. It really is. Well, since I did mention a sonnet, I'll read my latest efforts, and those of you who are metrically inclined <laughs> can choose to pick at it, but it was jarred out of me by the death of my sister-in-law. She's the youngest of five, and she died of cancer when she found out that it was truly invasive. She dismissed herself from the hospital and came home. It's called a sonnet for Stephanie. It's not right. The last born should not die first. Love for our little sister couldn't surrender her tenuous life for what we feared the worst. Our hopes for recovery, although slender, ask her to endure radiation and pain for our sakes. Selfish longing tried to smother her certain choice as we watched her life wane. Don't go, we all pleaded, but she had other braver plans, to gather the reins of death into her own frail hands and jump the last, the highest hurdle on her ending breath, knowing she would land where in years past her loved ones had landed, in a sacred place, a landing blind but sure, guided by grace. 
That was beautiful. Thank you very much for coming on the air with us and sharing your two cents. It was my pleasure. I hope we can hear more from you in the future, and I'm going to keep an eye out. Thank you. I'll keep working. (laughs) And now for our listener submissions. Today we have selected poetry from Paul Goldman. You can find Paul's poetry at ecstaticpoet.com. You can also find his poetry at Wild Joy, the ecstatic poetry of Paul Goldman on Facebook. Do you remember? Do you remember how to fly? Just lift your arms, bend your head back, and feel your wings unfold. Soon you are aloft in the clear, abiding blue, nothing but endless sky all around. Oh, my sweet, sweet child, do you remember everything now, before you came and fell to earth? Now is the moment you remember. The tears fall, the grief flows at what you left behind. Know, though, that the gift is in your remembering. Just lift your arms, bend your head back, and feel your wings unfold. As the wind whispers prayers. The rising and falling of chords flow like a river from your lips, pursed upon the flute crafted from birch and cedar. I let your rhythms guide me deeper into the canyon, where I count the layers of sediment to learn who has been here before me. Both wind and flute whisper prayers to the ancestors. Owl dancers arise to soar above these sanctuary walls. I long to join them in dance and in perpetual flight. Chiaroscuro Moment Light and shadow dance on the edges of my awareness, as if Caravaggio and Da Vinci are both beyond their respective centuries and here supping with me sharing wine and roast lamb. Vision keening, each scene I see is painted with crackling electric vitality, greens, yellows, and reds, shadow and light intersected, pulsing, vibrating, singing 13th century madrigals. I am alive as never seen before. Awareness becomes who I am, seeing into each solitary substance of tree, of grass, of sky, and more importantly, of you, in all of your startling, stellar substance and beauty realized in flesh. And lastly, from his latest book, Silence Speaks, published by Gen Z Publishing, Feel the Fire. Close your weary eyes. Feel into the very tip of your heart's flame. Temperatures rising to 800 degrees Fahrenheit as all surrounding walls of flame. Laughter arises. After all this time to feel this new expansive heat, to recognize love still burns and yearns for your highest desire, you no longer even search for any extinguishment, for this is how you have had to come alive. Thank you all for listening. And just a reminder, 
I want your art on my show. Any and every type of poem you can throw at me. I want every shape, size, and smell. Give me your weird stuff. I really want to hear it. Submit all poems to Sunflower Sutras. You can find us on Facebook. And if you're not a Facebook person, you can go ahead and email any submissions directly to me at tara.bartley on yahoo.com. Again, thank you so much for listening. Salon Gafol, and have a good one.